0: Can you hear me? There in the back? Yes? Testing. One, two, three. This is working? Great. Everything's working? Great. Just checking. You know, you never know what's exactly getting through, do you? It's a little like the day years ago I was on a radio show. Sound check. That was its name, though at the time I didn't know what it was called. So when I was sent into the studio and the host looked up and said, just follow my lead, this is sound check, I kept staring slightly terrified into his eyes, trying to hear if we were live or only rehearsing, which is in its way always the question. So I invite you now to hear the word of the Lord from Psalm 50. The Mighty One, God the Lord, speaks. He summons the earth from rising of the sun to its setting. From Zion, the perfection of beauty, God appears in radiance. Our God is coming. He will not be silent. Devouring fire precedes him, and a storm rages around him. On high he summons heaven and earth in order to judge his people. Gather my faithful ones to me, those who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. The heavens proclaim his righteousness, for God is the judge. Selah. Give pause for listening. Can you hear God's voice speaking as if a canopy over the earth? We are live. This is not a rehearsal.
1: Thank you, Beth. Good morning, everybody. Almost afternoon. Good almost afternoon. Super Bowl Sunday. We're kind of crowded in the first service. Everybody's like gearing up for the big day. Super Swift Sunday, I'm calling it. Right? Super Bowl in Vegas. This is like quite the event. Um, I thought, you know, this on the church calendar today is um, Transfiguration Sunday. And uh, to me, it's, it's kind of a wonderful juxtaposition on this day, a day where all worldly power is on display, that we see a little glimpse into what divine power really looks like. Um, I, I'm calling this sermon the power of restraint, because to me the, the intensity of divine power is seen not in this grandeur and display but so often in something that is smaller, a little bit more subtle, this true transforming power comes across, and not as some self-aggrandizement, but in this power of sacrificial love. And restraint is something that does have power. There's, you know, something potent about just a few well-placed words. I, uh, I teach a, a class for grad school at a seminary, and, you know, I think so often when you get a word count on an assignment, at least undergrad, you're like trying to come up with enough words. And now what I often find myself marking down for is too many words, that sometimes it's easier to say something with more words, and the work comes in the restraint. There was uh, an assignment given to um, an author that you all know. His his name before was Theodore Geisel, but that's not who you know him as. You know him as Dr. Seuss who uh, was given this assignment to come up with kind of a new Dick and Jane, that students were, you know, Dick and Jane was accessible to first graders. It was just boring. And so they said, come up with a 225-word children's book. And uh, I think the cat in the hat is 236. So he failed the assignment, but wrote something I think really profound. Dr. Seuss is like this epitome of like the few well-placed words. Um, In fact, green eggs and ham only uses 50 words, all single syllable, except for one. Anywhere. I would not like them here or there. I would not like them anywhere. I do not like green eggs and ham. I do not like them. See? The simple, powerful words, right? And um, this exercise, I think, is an interesting one. If you've ever had to write a haiku, right? It's about getting down to like just the essential syllables, There's um, an exercise that's often given to sort of celebrity figures, but um, this clever little exercise of a six-word memoir. Have you guys heard of this assignment? To try to summarize your life in six words. And so um, I was reading I mean, so many people have done this, and there's a whole list of them. I gave you just a couple of them. Um, This one from Kay Bertrand. I'm my mother, and I'm fine. Wendy Lee says... Asked to quiet down, spoke louder. (laughs) Happiest when ignoring huge financial debt. (laughs) Brought it to a boil, often. This is my favorite one from Colbert. Well, I thought it was funny. (laughs) Revenge is living well without you. Almost nothing was under my control. (laughs) I can resonate with that last one. I might steal that. But this little exercise of trying to capture an essence in just a few words, right? But when somebody does that well, it's, I think, shows us something really insightful. I I think about this sometimes, the, the sort of exercise in restraint or this power of simplicity in a little church like this. We call this church affectionately Little Church by the Sea. It was on the side of the building for years. But it's an interesting thing when you think about what growth looks like, right? Because we immediately think size, footprint, numbers. Being in this little tiny community church requires us to think about what growth might look like with a different metric. We talk about bearing fruit or growing deeper. We talk about what is our influence, right? Growing in influence. And that's a word that's kind of taken on some baggage, hasn't it, in recent years? Well, it's, it's become a vocation, as it turns out, that you can make a lot of money being an influencer. I, I've heard that Kylie Jenner gets a million dollars per product placed in a single post, right? And people pay that because it's worth it, right? That you go an influencer, these people that we think, how can I be like that, right? I want to be like that person. And what generally we're looking for is something that feels, you know, natural, but beautiful, often young, stylish, Um, a sort of glorious backdrop, right, where you go, uh, a post where you're down by the ocean, like there you are overlooking Bali, and um, everybody's like, wow, I want that. Maybe I should buy that product, right? And um, it's an interesting thing about influence and how that's done. This kind of everything's got a lens, everything's got a filter. I mean, um, we, we present something that that looks true even though it's often not. I um, was talking to somebody who had moved from Bali and he said, you know, part of the problem is it's just become so inundated with influencers, and I was like, well, what do you mean? And he's like, well, you know that post, like the person that's doing yoga down there by, you know, overlooking the ocean? He's like, when you go down there in person, there's like 50 of them, right? All like 10 feet apart doing this thing. And you're like, oh gosh, that doesn't look like that in the ad, right? But, but influence, when we think about influence and man's influence, we, we come up with this picture that's like better than the real thing. But the truth is, when we take a closer look, we start to see through it, that there's a thinness to this kind of influence. There's a new influencer out there now um, from Korea, O Rosie. And the interesting thing about O Rosie with a Z is that she's AI. And yet Calvin Klein, Tiffany, like people have paid O Rosie a lot of money to influence their product product. But they're not real, right? How bizarre is this? <clears throat> and what I'm getting at is like man's influence. The, the larger it grows, the louder it grows. All of a sudden you start really seeing the cracks. That when we do our best to create something of substance, so often it just becomes more and more bizarre. This unrestrained influence of ours. Usually when we get a hold of it, we wreck it. That our hubris takes over, our selfishness. And, and it, it sort of gets strange. It reminds me of the capital city in the Hunger Games. Have you ever seen that movie? Where like these people walk into this environment of wealth and it's just odd. The Super Bowl today. I mean, nothing against it, right? Go 49ers. But... um But all the glitz around it it just starts to get really weird. And I think it leaves us with this ache inside of us, this longing for something of substance, true beauty. What is truth in the midst of this? And I say all this because I think this chapter really is about this answer to this question, like the deepest question. It's a question that echoes all throughout the Gospels. And it's I think maybe the most common question asked in the Gospels is this question, who is this? Who is this man? Everywhere Jesus goes, people are asking, like, Whoa, who is this? Who is this that the wind and the waves obey him? Who is this that claims to forgive sins? Who is this that speaks with such authority that even the demons obey him? And this answer comes in a display of power, but in a power that shows that it's coming exactly opposite of the way that man's power works. Yes, it is on display, and yes, the ground is going to shake, but what we see instead with Jesus is a power that is being held back, and for just a brief moment, it's like he lets go of the rope, and we get a glimpse of who he really is. The curtain comes back, and there is Jesus. And the Father is going to speak a common word that was shared before at Jesus' baptism. This is my beloved Son, But the Father is going to give us a command along with it, a command that comes to Peter and James and John. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. So Mark chapter 9, verses 2 through 9. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves to be alone. He was transfigured in front of them, and his clothes became dazzling, extremely white, as no launderer on earth could whiten them. Elijah appeared to them with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let us set up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah, because he did not know what to say since they were terrified. A cloud appeared overshadowing them, And a voice came from the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, he ordered them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. A glimpse of what was to come. A glimpse of resurrection power. Who is this? The Father speaks the answer to this question. This is my beloved Son. And this moment here is this kind of reenactment. I, I love how Scripture does this with intentionality. It's um, These scenes are recreated for us, and they're filled with images and symbols that matter. It's always on a mountaintop, and what's interesting is this is where the people assumed that God must come, right? In the highest point, in the mountains. And so God, I think, just humbly shows up where we're expecting him, there on the top of the mountain. But but we're reminded of Moses, who actually appears in this instance, but Moses who went up on the mountain to encounter God. Moses who saw the back of God and whose face glowed. Moses giving the law of God. And here's Moses alongside Elijah, probably the most dramatic of all the prophets that he was sort of the father of all prophets, and even John the Baptist was said to be kind of within his line, within his school, the the line of Elijah. And here in this moment, we see a new revelation being given. Instead of the law being given, we see unfolding God's plan, his redemption of the world shown right there in the face of his son, and we call this a transfiguration. The, the Greek word is that word metamorphosis. That, that Jesus is metamorphosizing right here in front of his three kind of inner circle d- uh, disciples. And metamorphosis, we, we think of this kind of symbolically as like the, the caterpillar becoming the butterfly, right? This new creation emerges. But what I think is so interesting about this, and this is, I think, where we're going with this tonight, as far as this morning, as far as restraint, you you see what Jesus is going to become. You see his glory. But we're reminded also that, that this is who Jesus has always been. That the metamorphosis almost takes place in reverse. That with the coming of Christ to earth, you see the butterfly becoming a caterpillar that God himself becomes small, that comes down into the form of a human being. At Advent, this first Advent, we celebrate the humility of God to restrain himself down to human form, to become this helpless child. And in this moment, it's like Jesus, for just a split second, gives us a glimpse at what's really underneath the surface. Brilliant light. Luke is going to describe this in his gospel like lightning shining forth. I, I love how they're like, no launderer could have gotten his clothes that white. Right? The funny things that catch their eye, but they're like, gosh, you just can't bleach material to get that white. It's like radiant, right? You, the, for this moment, Jesus displays this lightning comes out. And the ground shakes. It's this moment of power on display. But the thing is the the withholding or the restraint, the humility, this is where the true power is seen because Jesus is on his way to the cross. and the fullness of that dis- restraint, the fullness of that humility, the fullness of that sacrifice is displayed there in God's love. It isn't in the blinding flash of light. it isn't in the impressive thunder. It's in the power of the simple vocation, this is my beloved son. When I think about myself and uh, the, the little bit of power that I have, I, I see how I can tend to misuse it. Anything about me that feels even halfway impressive, how easy that is to just sort of slip into conversation eventually. I... um. Uh, was saying in the first service that um, years ago this very famous pastor moved to Laguna and started coming to our church. His name is Rob Bell, and uh, at the time he was probably the most, one of the most well-known people. Some of that was a little controversial, but Rob moved to Laguna and he started coming to our church, and I, I kind of, Laugh at myself a little bit in this way, but I'll notice when I'm like at pastoral conferences or these kind of things and meeting people, and they hear I'm from Laguna. I think, how long does it take before I drop the fact that Rob Bell came to our church? And I think it's usually about 20 minutes. And I think, you know what? I'm not going to say it this time. And then, like, sure enough, oh, there it is. It seemed relevant. Why does it seem relevant every time? This sort of little humble brag, like, oh, yeah, yeah, I know Rob, blah, blah, blah. Or I know so-and-so, or I'm connected to And I'm like, afterwards, like, Jeff, why do you do that? Well, it's it's some little flex of power or something like that. It's trying to hold on to value or say, you know, hey, maybe I'm sort of a big deal or whatever that is, right? This is human power. And when we see it, right, you're like, oh, it's unattractive. But it's so hard not to. That our ego has this way of trying to to build and construct this sense of our worthiness. We try to build our influence. We try to promote our brand. Divide and power has none of that. It comes in meekness. It comes in humility. It, It takes that power and restrains it. Peter's sitting there and he's like, oh, I knew Jesus was a big deal, but wow, here he is with. Moses and Elijah, oh my gosh, like we should build three tabernacles for these guys, right? And I love Peter. He just sort of stammers. I think it's lovely that Jesus chooses him to build the church upon because he's like hardly the guy you would pick for that. He's the guy who just can't stop talking or always kind of blunders in and yet Jesus loves him. But he's going to say this thing, stammer on this thing, like, oh my gosh, Jesus, we knew he was a big deal, but we had no idea that he was on the same lines as Moses and Elijah. But the Father is going to speak. And what He says is like, no, 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 you've got that wrong. That Jesus is the voice to listen to. Not just one among many. Not just one of the most important. He's the one to listen to. This is my beloved Son, Listen to him. And that's the thing that's totally unique about Jesus. We talked a little bit before about how Moses, when he sees the back of God, his face shines. And and, and the truth is, what we see in this is a vocation that we're all given to shine and radiate this light. But the thing is, all of us, we're like the moon, right? Right? When you see the moon up in the sky and it's shining, what are you really seeing? Where is that light coming from? The sun. The moon reflects the sun's light, which is what makes it visible. But Jesus isn't the moon. Jesus is the sun. He's the source of that light. When that gets pulled back, we're seeing that power in its essence, the beginning, the starting point of that, the catalyst from which all creation came forth. That's the power we see on display. And see, this is where, you know, if I might say so humbly, this is where I think a lot of religions get it wrong, is they're like, oh yeah, Jesus is a great guy, right? He's great, he's one among many. Like, Jesus is my homeboy, right? Have you seen that shirt? What's the problem with that? Well, it's... I mean, Jesus is our friend. He he is the fullness of what man can become. He is all of those things, but, but he's totally and utterly unique. This is what the Father is saying. Listen to him. And he writes, says it like this, how can you live with the terrifying thought that the hurricane has become human, that fire has become flesh, that life itself became life and walked in our midst? Christianity either means that or it means nothing, It is either the most devastating disclosure of the deepest reality of the world, or it's a sham, a nonsense, a bit of deceitful play-acting. Most of us, unable to cope with saying either of those things, condemn ourselves to live in the shallow world in between. Like, yeah, Jesus, he's a brilliant ethicist. Like, oh, he is that, but he is so much more that we see the divine on display, that's the power. And I love how that power comes restrained. Restrained so that it doesn't overwhelm us. But restrained because it's modeling like our trajectory, our transformation, that we too will be metamorphosizing into a new creation designed to bear that sort of light without being consumed by it to show that glory without turning it inward in our own pride. Jesus is going to go to the cross and what we see there is the ultimate example of power under restraint. The kind of power that lays its life down for others. The kind of power that initiates forgiveness and grace that gives generously to all. Paul quotes Jesus in saying, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is perfected in weakness. And Paul says, therefore I will most gladly boast all the more about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may reside in me. Is it okay to boast? Sure, about your weaknesses. Why? Because then the light shines through and we don't mistake it. Our glory is simply in showing the glory of God today is going to be a, a spectacle of power but god's power comes in the very opposite way it comes in meekness and simplicity and restraint it's an interesting question you know to ask ourselves who are we listening to who is influencing us there's a little algorithm. If you go onto your Instagram, you're like, oh, this is what influences me, right? Because it's already figuring that out. Notices where you slow down as you scroll. What are you paying attention to? What are you noticing? I've heard it said that uh, we are all like sort of a conglomeration of our top five relationships. is that interesting? The people that you put yourself around. I mean, as a kid, my parents were always like, surround yourself with good influences, Jeff, because that's who you're going to become like. And they're right. That we do sort of morph into those people that we value, the people that we listen to. Over time I've got a whole little group of my own kind of influencers. I, I joke about my friend C. S. Lewis or Chesterton or Merton. I, I love these people because I I've read like just about everything I can get my hands on there, that they become influences in my life. They point me in the right direction. They give me practical wisdom. Blaise Pascal, Dostoevsky, I love these people and how they've shaped my own values and how I live. But if the Father is speaking to me, he's saying, Jeff, listen to Jesus. That these things are valuable as they point me towards Christ. But when I take and elevate any of these other voices, even good ones like that, When they become too high, uh, when I start paying attention to that voice, I put myself at risk. I I come up with important things to say instead of maybe what God is speaking. And Jesus is going to model this. His whole ministry is what Paul refers to as kenosis, this emptying of divinity, this laying down of power. In doing this, the power that manifests is actually loving and not just loving those who are easy to love, but loving the least. In Philippians 2, these verses are familiar, but Paul writes this. He says, if then there's any encouragement in Christ, if any consolation of love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, Spirit, if any affection and mercy, make my joy complete by thinking the same way, having the same love, United in spirit, intent on one purpose. I mean, listen to these. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look not to his own interests, but rather to the interests of others. See, that thing, that's power, right? The power that withholds my rights and instead focuses on the needs of others. That's willing to give up having the last word, or win the argument, or whatever that is, or be you know, valued for who we see ourselves to be. That person that is instead free from those things, who's laid down those needs. Paul goes on and says, Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. And then he quotes this, what was probably a hymn for the early church. They would probably sing these words. Who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This emptying of our rights gives us glory that glorifies God. And this is the calling. This is what Jesus models. And Paul's saying, so you do it. And how do you do it? Putting others' needs above your own. Becoming a servant, not seeking credit for all of these things. When we do this, we start to shine, at least to those who are paying attention, who are noticing. This becomes sacred ground when this is done. When this happens, like bushes start to catch fire. There's a contemporary artist, Makoto Fujimura, who writes there are burning bushes everywhere burning yet not consumed. And our lives can be just as miraculous. Our making can be a visible marker of God's gratuitous love. That we can live our lives in such a way, in such a way that God's beauty shines. In fact, this is what we're called to do, that, that every bit of our creativity, every bit of like who God has made us to be can be poured out in ways that show beauty, that, that appear glorious but not in a way that we clutch to, in a way instead that we hold with open hands, and when we do, we burn. It's authentic. It's humble glory. I love how when God's voice comes in, it's spoken with such gentleness and tenderness. This is my beloved son. The other day, my daughter, she's a part of a little musical uh Class and little company there where uh, they did a rehearsal. 14 students all got up in front and sang a solo. Can you imagine? It's terrifying. Billy can imagine. But the rest of us, that would probably terrify us. Each of these kids, and they're all like kind of the whole spectrum of ability, right? So some kids get up there and they're brand new and they just sort of belt it out and you're like, well done. It's just beautiful. Everybody bursts into applause. The beauty of that sort of courage to be seen, love afterwards, just sitting there with Lila and you know, we're like whatever, watching something on TV, and I'm like, "Hey, what?" I said, "You killed it tonight. It's so good." And I see that like little face just light up, right? This is what God speaks over us. You're my child. You are my beloved when God speaks over Jesus, but when he speaks over each one of us, he speaks with such affection. And see, if we're not listening to that voice and we're trying to build that value in some other way by looking impressive or associating ourselves by other people that might, like we feel like, elevate us, and the thing that we're longing for is that word. Like, oh, Jeff, my beloved. Too often I'm either trying to be impressive or I'm over here being completely judgmental of myself. That's the other voice that comes in. The voice that finds that flaw in whatever I say. Just wait. This afternoon, probably like 3.30 or 4, I'm going to be like, why did I say that? That was so stupid. (laughs) Like, I'll find it. Patty always laughs. You'll find it eventually, Jeff. You'll find the flaw. I mean, there's plenty, but it's not that hard to go find the flaw. But even when it goes really well, I'll find the flaw. Too often, that's the voice that I'm listening to. The father's like, listen, listen to Jesus. Listen to him, not the critic. There's a great story that Anne Lamott tells about, she had just written a book and um Everything like you know went forward. There it is. It's just been released, and the first review that popped up on Amazon one star, and it said the box was wet. And she's like, I must have read that review ten thousand times. Like one star, the box was wet. <laughs> to go, why do we fixate on that, right? As in our insecurity, when we're trying to come off as a certain way, why do we just obsess over the critical voice, the voice of judgment? I wrote a book, and I have my own one-star review. It says this. Ready? Mostly someone venting about their life and choices. It was a bit prideful and uninteresting. I kept wondering, when is he going to get into it? Couldn't finish the book. One star. And if I ever find out who wrote that, oh. they're dead, right? They're going to get the wrath. Right? You." We live our lives striving for this like power and we know in the end we're like kind of a fraud and and this is like the best that we can do. The world longing for glory but created it in such broken ways. And listening to these inner tapes that are constantly speaking in the harshest voice to ourselves. The Father saying, Listen to me. Listen to Jesus who comes in and speaks this love into us, who we truly are, not to how we're trying to look with the filter on, but to who our hearts really are, that God sees that, sees that in each one of you, and delights in that, wants to bring that to light. That's what he wants to shine through. And it takes some work, Because all of us have these impurities and junk in our lives. And you know what? We can still shine, even with all that brokenness. But God's like, we are going to refine that out. And so what so often happens as this light shines through us is it's burning. It's consuming things within ourselves. It it comes as a flame. and, And this is the thing that it's kind of a both and. I want God to shine brightly. And he goes, I will. But that flame is also a consuming fire that's going to go after the pride, go after the self-obsession, go after the insecurity, and set us free from that. I'd like to say that didn't hurt, doesn't hurt, but it does. It hurts that part in myself that wants control. I read this poem from Scott Cairns that I thought is really, to me, kind of captures this. He's, he's talking about Exodus, and he's talking about the pillar of fire. He's talking about the cloud that led the people through the wilderness, which also is there on the mountaintop in the transfiguration. But he says this, in the pillar of fire, in the pillar of cloud, it did not depart from before the people. According to the promise, we had known we would be led and that the ancient God would deign to make his hidden presence shown by a column of fire and a pillar of cloud. We had come to suspect what fierce demand our translation to another land might bode. But had not guessed he would allow our own brief flesh to bear the flame, become the cloud. I would love to say that God's power is simply restrained, and therefore, as a result of it, we get to just shine, but but we are asked to follow, that we are asked to bear the flame. And oftentimes, it's in that sort of sacrificial pain that comes. Laying down ourselves for the sake of others. Loving those that are difficult to love. And this is doing a work. It's transforming our hearts. My, my friend C.S. Lewis puts it like this. He, he In his book, Screwtape Letters, he's talking this conversation between demons, right? So the, the uncle demon's writing to the nephew and talking about this agenda that God has with each of us. And he says this, By this method, thousands of humans have been brought to think that humility means pretty women trying to believe they're ugly and clever men trying to believe they're fools. And since what they are trying to believe may, in some cases, be manifest nonsense, they cannot succeed in believing it, and we have the chance of keeping their minds endlessly revolving on themselves in an effort to achieve the impossible. To anticipate the enemy's strategy, that's God, we must consider his aims, this is what God wants. The enemy wants to bring the man to a state of mind in which he could design the best cathedral in the world, know it to be the best, and rejoice in the fact without being any more or less or otherwise glad at having done it than he would be if it had been done by another. The enemy wants him in the end to be so free from any bias in his own favor that he can rejoice in his own talents as frankly and gratefully as in his neighbor's talents, or in a sunrise, an elephant, or a waterfall. He wants each man in the long run to be able to recognize all creatures, even himself, as glorious and excellent things. And I love this idea that this freedom is like this ability to shine without trying to steal that for yourself, without needing to take credit or prove something. It's just... Free. I have a friend who prays this prayer where he says, God, don't give me any more power than my character can handle. Is that a good prayer? I have another friend who prays, God, let me stay in this trial until I've learned everything that you would have for me here. And I think it's almost like the culmination of those two, that that the trials are forming a heart that can bear power without being consumed by it without robbing and stealing that. And so Jesus is constantly telling us helpful little ways to do this, ways to lay ourselves down. And it's usually involving some form of forgiveness or self-sacrifice. This is how we grow, but this is how we shine. This is the way true power is seen. So listen, I'm not even going to put these words up. You're going to have to listen. Listen to Jesus as he speaks to us. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. For he causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward will you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what are you doing out of the ordinary? Don't even the Gentiles do the same? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Or how about this? Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father in heaven. So whenever you give to the poor, don't sound a trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets, to be applauded by the people. Truly, I tell you, they have their reward. But when you give to the poor, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. So your giving may be in secret. And your Father, who sees in secret, will reward you. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be provided for you. Therefore, don't worry about tomorrow because tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. We're about to go into the season of Lent. And Lent is a season of fasting. It's a season of restraint and practicing that sort of power. It's an opportunity to take on a discipline that creates a sense of, requires some will to lay something aside. And I always say this every year, Lent is not about laying aside sin. That's all year long. Sorry, but it's true. We do that all year long. Lent is about laying aside something that is a comfort that maybe you're a little too dependent on. Or it's something that maybe is taking too great a precedent in your life, a second thing that's starting to become the first thing. It's about regaining some balance, creating that space, but doing so out of a desire to hear, doing that out of a desire to pay attention and to see. Often it's in times of fasting where all of a sudden God's voice becomes loud and clear. So what might you lay aside for Lent to create this space? Sometimes it's, it's taking on a discipline, adding to what we do. Here's my questions for you today. As we enter into Lent, how might you pay attention to Jesus? How might you lay aside some, um, some of the voices that are distracting you from God's voice? Withholding your opinions for the sake of listening to another there's this term in spiritual direction that we use called bracketing. And I love this idea. It's basically when this kind of thing pops into our mind and we think, oh, I've got something to say here. I've got something to add. I know the answer to this thing. You just sort of bracket it and you set it aside. You let maybe God bring you back to that thing. And One of my friends will say, I usually wait till God nudges me three times and then I'm like, okay, I'm going to offer it. That little discipline of setting aside, how do we bracket these things? These things aren't necessarily bad things, just things we've become attached to. Is there something in your life that you might set aside for 40 days as you go into the metaphorical desert with Jesus? Number two, is there a practice you might incorporate to listen better to Jesus? Maybe it's meditating on God's word. Maybe it's memorizing a scripture so that you can recite that throughout the day. Maybe it's carving out a a time of silence in your day, maybe 15 minutes to just sit and listen. We've talked about how this way, that when God speaks so often, it's very low-key. It comes in the sound of the stillness. Are you creating space for that in your life? Maybe Lent is a way of taking on a little discipline like that each day. Or is there something you can do to practice restraint Maybe finding a way to serve the least or giving up a comfort. We're calling Ash Wednesday, this Wednesday, uh, Coffee and Ashes, and Alan's going to bring good coffee, but I was thinking maybe we're going to put the creamer aside and you just have to drink it black. Some of you are like, that's the way you do drink coffee, come on. Um, a way of, of setting aside something that's just that's familiar or easy to depend on, giving up a comfort giving up that glass of wine at the end of the day or whatever that thing is that you just kind of lean on. I like how Brene Brown calls herself a take the edge off Some of us, you right, can relate. Like, ah, I just need to take the edge off again and again. Um, are you noticing and loving those in need? Are you paying attention to those around you? Who God wants you to shine that light of love on. Oftentimes it's not until we lay aside these comforts that we truly see the least of these. As we close today, I thought I would come back to our six word memoir. And so um, I'm going to read some scriptures over us, but uh, I thought for us as a church, maybe going into Lent, our six word memoir might be uh, to let our light shine before others. Let our light shine before others. How do we as a church shine this light but to do it in a way that shines God's light, a divine light that comes in humility, that considers others as more important than ourselves, that reaches out to the least of these, that goes to the margins? How can we shine that light to our little town here in Laguna and to the ends of the earth? So would you stand with me? Let me read these verses as a prayer. You, Church by the Sea, are the light of the world. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather on a lampstand, and it gives light for all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so they may see your good works. And give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Amen.